This is the Washington State Indivisible podcast. I am your host. My name is Stephen Cox. Hello. This week, Washington Attorney General Bob Ferguson. He is best known for his work in fighting Trump's travel ban, and he has recently announced his re-election campaign for 2020. Ferguson joins us for a wide-ranging discussion about the breadth of his work in office, about his vision for a third term, about his lifelong love affair with the game of chess, and of course, about the need for an impact of pushing back against the Trump administration. From my standpoint, the judiciary, for the most part, has stepped up to that challenge, right? As AGs have filed lawsuits, we keep winning. And that has stopped many of the worst excesses of this administration. That is all coming up, so stay with us. Over the last two and a half years, Washington's Attorney General Bob Ferguson has been an extraordinarily effective force against the Trump administration, racking up an impressive 21-0 win record, something that landed him on the Time Magazine 100 list. He has recently announced his re-election campaign, and so we are so excited to have him on to talk about some of the key challenges and victories over the last two and a half years and to learn maybe a few things about him that you did not know. Attorney General Bob Ferguson, it is so great to have you on the show. Hello. Oh, thanks for having me on. I really appreciate it. So you have kind of become a household name as in part because you have sued the Trump administration so successfully. And, you know, for those who may not be clear on this, what does it mean for a state to sue a president? And and historically, how common is that? So, well, historically, and by historically meaning before Barack Obama was president, it was relatively unusual, although not unheard of, for a state to challenge a president in court. Uh, But when Barack Obama became president, as your listeners probably know, Republican AGs filed dozens and dozens of lawsuits in a very systematic way against uh, Barack Obama. Now, they lost a large number of those cases, including their challenge to Obamacare, but that really started the uh, sort of large-scale offensive against the president. That happened with those Republican AGs. Democratic AGs now, with Donald Trump as president, have Uh, also sought to enforce the law, although with a much greater success rate. As you said, Washington State, we haven't lost a case yet. So we take those cases seriously. That's a big deal to sue uh, the president. Uh, We do that only if we think we have a good case, and we think our track record suggests that we're, we're choosing good cases to bring. Well, you know, since you brought up Republican attorneys general suing Obama, this may be apostasy to ask, but has any of your approach in suing Trump been informed by or molded after Republicans taking on Obama? Yeah, I think it's a little maybe too strong to say molded our approach after them, but I think it's obviously Democratic AGs observed what happened under the Obama administration. And uh, what I would also say is that the Trump administration has been, you know, especially uh, from my perspective, sloppy in the way they roll out their executive orders, which frankly beg for a legal challenge. That's and a very kind way of frankly, putting it. Yeah, sloppy. Yes. <laughs> and, uh, and I think that's right. And frankly, give us lots of strong legal arguments to challenge them because of the way in which they roll out their executive orders. So um, certainly there's an awareness of what Republican AGs did. Um, but when I sued the president, I was the first AG to take on Donald Trump uh, on the first Muslim travel ban, of course. Yeah. I wasn't thinking about Republican AGs or or what they did. Uh, I just was focused on that first Muslim travel ban, felt it was unlawful, felt it was unconstitutional, and really strongly believed it needed to be challenged. That's really all that was on my mind at that time. Well, let's talk about that, um, because that was your first major suit, and that 
ban was announced on Friday, January mm-hmm. 27th, 2017, just days after the mm-hmm. inauguration. And then you filed suit on Monday the 30th. Yeah. What were those 48 hours like in there? Uh, well, it was, you know, professionally speaking, probably the most intense, you know, 48 hours of my life. And yeah. I suspect everybody who was on the team working that case, I w- wouldn't be surprised if they all, all had the same same feeling about it. It was, you know, there was just a lot, of course, going on, a lot of decisions to be made. Um, and from my standpoint, you know, I decided Saturday, the day after the travel ban was executed, to challenge it. And then I recall asking the team, did they think they could have it ready by Monday? which was a pretty big ask. I mean, this is a huge, complex, difficult case to put together in three weeks, let alone three days. But the team felt they could, and they did, to their enormous credit. And so it just seemed to me that, you know, I did not want one business day to go by uh, without the people of the state of Washington knowing that, hey, we were on this case, we were filing it, and we were challenging the president. So it it was an intense few days. There's no getting around that. It was kind of an around-the-clock operation. but uh, but also I think everybody on the team felt you know, a strong sense of mission um, to get this done and to get it done well. You were the first to file suit, and then other states joined you. And your argument on this was unique. Can you remind us? Yeah, so um, our argument was that uh, we challenged it at its basic constitutional level. We said it's unlawful. It's unconstitutional. We said, hey, Judge Robart, the federal judge we had, you need to put an injunction on this and put a stop to it nationwide. There had been um, that weekend a couple more narrow challenges brought by individuals, organizations that tried to limit it as it applied to a certain individual, for example. We went big. We said, no, what we're challenging is the very uh, executive action itself and that therefore, Judge Robart, uh, you need to rule that it can't go into effect anywhere. So we didn't limit to Washington state we said there should be a national injunction, and that, of course, is what was granted. That's what was upheld, and then the Trump administration gave up on that first travel ban and eventually went back and tried to do a more narrow second travel ban. Which you also successfully challenged, and all of this made you, as I said, something of a celebrity. You were on the Time 100 list. I have to ask you, is it true that Anderson Cooper's people called your mother trying to get in touch with you? Uh, that, that, that story is true. Uh, <laughs> after we uh, prevailed... Before Judge Robart on the first travel ban, uh, it was like uh, it was a Friday late afternoon. It might have been after five o'clock, but it was definitely late, late afternoon when the decision came down. And as you can imagine, it was huge news, and the national media didn't really pay that much attention to our lawsuit. And so, frankly, I think they were a little caught flat-footed. That hey, wait a second, there's this injunction in place, and so all the media is trying to get get hold of me, but it's hard to get through. And it's after five, and so I got a phone call when I was walking back. Uh, uh, to the office after the oral argument in downtown Seattle. And it was a phone call from my mother, uh, you know, at the time, I think she was 88 years old or something. And she called and uh, I said, Mom, hey, what, what, what's up? And she said, well, I just got the strangest phone call. Somebody who works for Anderson Cooper just called me up and they want to talk to you. And so as I, I, as I very creative, right? Whoever it was who worked for Anderson Cooper, it worked. I got into Anderson Cooper later on that night. Um, but I'm not sure if they still thought I live with my mom or just that she was a good person to try and track me down. But either way, either way, it worked for them. <laughs> what must have been a, a very interesting moment for your mom. That's right. <laughs> oh, I'm sure it was. And, uh, you know, it's it was a big case and got a lot of attention. And it felt good to put a stop to what we really felt was uh, unlawful, but really also un-American 
uh, action by the president. And I know that you have the undying gratitude of pretty much everybody listening to this show right now. Uh, I want to talk about a couple of your recent actions. But first, I I do want to mention something that people may not know about you. You are an internationally rated chess master. And you won the state. It is true. And you won the state championship twice. How did you get interested in chess? Well, I was, uh, I remember that pretty well. I was nine. And uh, at Christmas time, I had some sort of, you know, from a store catalog of some kind I was looking at. And I remember seeing a picture of a chess set in the catalog. And I asked for it for Christmas. I don't really, you know, I, I, it wasn't like I, it's hard to even explain. I just remember thinking it looked cool. The chess mm-hmm. pieces looked cool to me. It wasn't any more complicated than that. <laughs> and so I got the chess set. And I remember the first thing I did with it, it was a small set, a magnetic set. And I was nine. I, I remember taking uh, one of the knights and going into the kitchen and putting in the toaster and pushing down the lever to see what would happen to it. And so the uh, <laughs> the, the black knight, um, I think I still got that set somewhere, is fried. Uh, it's fried, but I kept it. It stayed with me all over many, many years. That was my first chess set. So I just had an interest in it. And then once I learned how to play, taught myself or maybe a brother taught me, um, I just really fell in love with it at a young age. And then you took it all the way to young adulthood. You postponed college to play chess internationally in Europe. Um, first of all, what was your parents' response to that when, when you made that decision? <laughs> they were, I think they were a little bit skeptical, but they were wise parents in the sense that they didn't say no, that they knew that would do no good. I was 18. I was, I was a man by then and could make my own decisions. Right. And, well, I knew they weren't excited about it. I mean, I knew that. They would have preferred if I went to college, but but they supported it, you know, in the sense that they, the successes I had, they were happy about it. If I had a setback, they felt bad about that. But I felt they, they supported what I was doing, even though I knew they really wished I was doing something else. I think it's a good lesson for parents, right? You can't at a mm-hmm. certain age, your kid's going to do what your kid's going to do. And, and I think they had the right response, which was to be supportive uh, of what I was doing. And, uh, uh, but I did spend a year doing that. I went to Europe. I played in Norway. I played in what was then West Berlin in, uh, uh, and when there was a East Germany and a West Germany. Right. And uh, in fact, I took a second trip back and played in France, if I remember correctly. So it was, I, I really, it was a great experience to travel around the country, to travel around Europe, uh, playing in, in sort of on the chess circuit. Yeah, not a bad way to uh, to spend your, yeah. your you know early adulthood. Um, right. I should also mention that you recently held a fundraiser where you played eighteen people simultaneously. This, I guess, in the chess world, is known as a simul, and you had only one loss and three draws, which just it, honestly it blows my mind. And I, I just have to ask you, what what is it like to play that many people at once? It's hard. I'm it's sure. Hard. Um, and I, I haven't played tournament chess in many many years, so I'm completely out of practice, which didn't help any. And so, you know, when I was younger and played all the time, you know, I could do a chess simul and play 25 or 26 people at one time. And it was still hard, but I, you know, I was more comfortable doing it. This was harder. A lot of the players I was playing were tournament chess players and, you know, they know what they're doing. So, you know, they have the advantage of time. I've got to go around and make a move on every single board while I'm going around. They have time to think when I get to their board, that's when they've got to make a move. So it levels the playing field between a player who might have a higher rating like myself and someone's got a lower rating because they have more time to think. And it's, uh, so it's challenging, of course. Um, but, uh, uh, so I'm not in a hurry to do it again. How's that? (laughs) Yeah, I don't think I would be either. Well, so just putting all this together, you can see that how chess and law would fit together. Uh, but your political career started in 2003 when you were elected to the King County council. Why did you decide to run for public office? 
Yeah, it's, uh, you know, I'd often thought about it. I, at a young age, I had an interest in politics. So, you know, I read the sports page first, but then I got to politics. I, mean, I had an interest in politics. My parents were politically active. They never ran for office, but they were politically involved. And so that was clearly an influence on me. They valued public service. They thought being a politician was a good thing. Um, and that no doubt had an impact on me. And so in terms of running for office, you know, it always been the back of my mind, uh, but I think I just reached a stage where I thought, hey, the incumbent in the district I lived in on the King County Council, you know, I just felt was not especially engaged in the district and often ran unopposed. You know, election cycle after election cycle ran unopposed. And it just seemed to me, hey, I had some ideas of what I thought the county could be doing differently. I thought that, hey, every incumbent, before they just get a lifetime appointment, she'd been there for 20 years, should have at least one real challenge, right? Right. And uh, it was a combination of those reasons where I thought, okay, I'm, I'm going to give this a shot. And so sort of fast forwarding to 2012 when you ran for attorney general, uh, was that something that you had specifically aspired to? Because like I say, it's a great fit for your mm-hmm. skill set. Yeah, I think when I really got serious about maybe running for attorney general was, I, I think a couple years before that, uh, I was on the King County Council. There was an opening for King County Executive. I think it was 2009. Ron Sims got an appointment and was not running for re-election. And so there was an open seat for county executive. And frankly, everybody thought I would run for it. And I considered it, but I decided not to. And the main reason was I thought, hey, if I'm going to go run for another office and really invest my time and ask for donations and go through what you got to go through to run for a big office like county executive, I want to make sure as an office I really felt was the right fit for me, uh, that I thought I could do the most amount of good and match my skill set. And when I thought about it, as much as I think that office is an important one, which it is, I thought, you know, the job I really want is being attorney general. And back then we had an attorney general, of course, Rob McKenna. He was in his second term. And I just decided then uh, I would uh, look seriously at running for attorney general if McKenna chose not to run again at some point. And so then a few years later in 2012, he ran for governor and that opened up the AG position. So I think it's fair to say around 2009 is when I I reflected on, hey, am I going to run for a higher office? And if so, what do I think is the office I would most want to run for? And for me, it was not about just a higher office. That had very little interest to me. It was more, what's the right office? What's the one that can have the biggest impact, make the biggest difference? And I liked the fact that I could be a lawyer again. You know, I think right. law is a powerful tool. And I thought being attorney general, there were some things I could do in that role that were fundamentally different than being county executive or in Congress or in any other position. Well, you really have made a huge impact, and you've been enormously effective in the job. And I want to just talk about a couple of things that have been in the news uh, that you Mm -hmm. have responded to. Uh, So today, on September 18th, this is the day that we're recording this podcast, you announced that you are filing suit against the Trump administration over its move to block states' abilities, specifically California, to set their own fuel emission standards. Can you talk briefly about why you were moved to take action here and and what the strategy will be? Yeah, so it's a good example of much of the litigation we've brought. I think you mentioned we have now filed 47 lawsuits against the president. I did not, but I'm glad you brought that up. Okay, there you go. So we've filed 47 so far, 48 with this one. And about half of those cases are related to the environment, uh, which is not often the focus of news articles. This one's a big one, will be in the news, is in the news. Uh, But this administration is really systematically trying to roll back environmental protections, rules, regulations, and laws over many administrations. And so 
just at a high level, it's fair to say that I and other Democratic AGs are very focused on that aspect of this administration, those rollbacks of environmental protections and how important that is for our natural world, for climate change, uh, for species that we have like orcas. Um, and so uh, we've been very involved on these efforts now throughout this administration. Um, this is a big one in terms of the impacts to Washington, to California, and to other states. And so, you know, we're going to give some thought to the best way to to do this litigation. We've announced today that we intend to file a lawsuit, um, but the precise way in which we go about it, that is still something that, that we think through about that filing our own lawsuit, joining another state. And those are tactical decisions that uh, that I make for all of our cases. Yeah, I was going to ask, um, but I know that obviously Javier Becerra has been uh, mm-hmm. very instrumental. He's California's AG. Mm-hmm. Will you be coordinating with his office at all on this? Oh, yeah, it, that, that is more than fair to say. And so, uh, and that's not unusual. I would say that uh, Javier Becerra, California AG, uh, New York, Massachusetts, those four states with Washington, I think it's fair to say, are sort of the most active states in terms of leading the lawsuits. So in other words, each lawsuit that's filed, often, almost always, there is what we call a multi-state. And we file collectively in action, and one state is chosen to lead that effort. We do that because you don't need to have 24 different lawsuits from 24 different states, um, and it makes sense to consolidate resources for these complex cases. And this was something that you mentioned happened with the travel ban. That's exactly right. So we led that. We filed in Washington. States joined us, and we led that coalition on the first travel ban. So that's how that started. And so of the 47 or 48 cases we filed, I think Washington has been the lead state uh, about, I want to say, it's been a number of times, 15, 16 cases, something like that. So we're, we're very active. We're not simply joining other states. We're leading a group of states or filing our own lawsuit here in Washington state. And so... Uh, and I'd say New York, Massachusetts, California are often lead states along with Washington. Sometimes other states are involved, but one of those four states is usually uh, a lead, the lead state. And so that's a decision I make on whether or not, hey, do we want to file our own leader group of states? Do we want to join another one? Um, what, what's the right fit for the team, the resources we have at that particular moment in our office, uh, the importance of the action? Hey, do we have expertise in our office? Or is the expertise really placed in some other AG's office where they're better positioned to lead a coalition of states. So right. there's a lot that goes into that decision, um, but uh, but it's an important decision for each case that we bring. Well, you know, this case in particular, this fuel emission standards case, may prove to be a test of how courts view states' rights. Uh, do you mm-hmm. see this as potentially precedent-setting? Oh, I would say each of the cases that we bring, each of them, is in their own way precedent-setting. Some are more high-profile, but in fact, in some ways, we sometimes cite back to previous victories for later cases that we that we file against the administration, because there is often, to your point, that tension between the federal government, what do they control, and states' rights. And, and there's an ongoing tension there, of course. And so we are mindful when we bring our cases of how strong is our case? Do we have a good argument on those issues? Um, and uh, because we want to make sure we're building strong precedent in each case we bring that will help us on the next case and the one after that. What we don't want to do is get a bad ruling from the U.S. Supreme Court on one of these cases right. that then restricts or limits our ability to bring future cases. So there's a lot of thought that goes into how we structure these arguments. Uh, do we file a case? Where we file a case? Uh, there's a lot that goes on behind the scenes for each of these cases uh, and precisely along the, the lines of the question that you asked. 
And then, as I said uh, earlier, the AG's office doesn't just bring suit against the government. You also bring suit against corporations. Uh, mm-hmm. I know Washington was one of a number of states to sue opioid manufacturers. And mm-hmm. uh, recently, several states opted to settle with Purdue Pharma and the Sackler family. Purdue Pharma makes uh, OxyContin. It was a pretty sizable mm-hmm. settlement, but you rejected that. Why? Yeah, I've rejected for a number of reasons. So one is what's been reported in the news media is a settlement is valued at 10 to $12 billion. Um, the view of the states like Washington that have not accepted that purported settlement is that the value of the settlement is far less than that, that the states that they sell for that amount will never see $12 billion. The reason is because the way the settlement is being paid is not from the Sackler's bank account and the ill-gotten gains, the billions of dollars they've benefited from Purdue Pharmaceutical and the sale of OxyContin and all the addiction and harm that's followed. No, what's happening is they would be selling off Purdue Pharmaceutical and other international holdings, and the sale of those assets would pay for the settlement. So again, not the Sacklers paying their own money. What's definitely clear is that the way Washington and other states have disagreed with the settlement, we value, our experts value those holdings at a much lower dollar amount than the Sacklers do. The Sacklers say, oh, this is all worth 10 to $12 billion. We disagree with that. And we say it's valued much less than that. Number two, I did not agree to it because there is zero accountability for the Sacklers in this settlement. There's no admission of wrongdoing. There's not even an apology. They walk away and they walk away as billionaires, billionaires. And look, I just uh, think that is not the right outcome. Yes, it's important to get dollars that can help individuals in Washington state who are grappling with opioid addiction. No doubt about that. But I also have to balance that out with accountability for the Sacklers, for Purdue, and for transparency so the public can see the documents uh, about what Purdue knew, what and when, and their actions that, in our view, were unlawful and, frankly, immoral. And so are you confident, then, that you will get, uh, through court action, some sort of admission of wrongdoing doing from the Sacklers and some greater uh, financial responsibility from them? Yeah, so we have a trial date against Purdue here in Washington State uh, in February, which is right around the corner. We're the first state to have a trial date scheduled. So we're ready to go. We're litigating. We want to have a trial. So yes, my goal has always been, and I told my team we filed this case, we're not going to send this litigation. We're going to litigate. We're going to invest the resources. We're going to beat back all their motions to dismiss this case. We're going to drive to a trial date. And the goal is to have a judge say what they did was wrong. They violated the law and issue penalties against them. And that gives the opportunity for any parent who lost a child to addiction of OxyContin to go sit in that courthouse and watch those employees of Purdue Pharmaceutical testify under oath about what they knew and what they did. So that's the goal. Right now, Purdue has filed for bankruptcy, as you know, and there will be some big decisions coming up. Will the bankruptcy judge allow Washington State to continue with that trial? That's a big question that will be resolved. Will the bankruptcy judge make states like Washington that did not agree to the settlement, will they make us accept the settlement? Bankruptcy is a whole world that's complex when it comes to the law. I won't even try and and break it down because it gets so complex so fast. Hmm. But that bankruptcy judge has huge powers uh, to either allow us to go forward with the trial or say we can't, or to literally make Washington state and the other states have rejected the settlement. A bankruptcy judge has the power to make all creditors accept a deal, whether they like it or not. 
So there are a lot of moving pieces uh, with Purdue Pharmaceutical uh, that are that are still out there. Well, we'll be keeping an eye on that as it moves mm-hmm. forward in February for sure. And look, you know, there's just so much that we could talk about that you have done in your tenure. Uh, you have pushed for gun reform. You have taken on the EPA. You continue to fight Trump's uh, inhumane immigration policy. Uh, you just recently took action against energy provider Avista for overcharging consumers and just on and on and on. Um, what are some of the things that you would look to take on in your third term? You know, it's interesting you ask that because uh, – uh, not too long ago, I, when it became very clear I'd be seeking a third term, that I, I sat down with a couple of leaders in my office and said, you know, we need to have a retreat, bring in some key folks in the office, and talk about sort of two things uh, w- looking long term. One is we need to think about how we're going to operate as an office if Donald Trump is still president for another four years, right? We're doing so much litigation there. Yeah. You know, my team's been working hard, but they can maybe do it for another year, a year and a half, but if it's another four years beyond that, we need to think about resources, right? And just think about how what, what life is going to be like if this is going on for another four years. And also, correspondingly, what if Donald Trump is not president? With the resources that we use to litigate against the president, where do we want to put those resources? What's next for our office in, in sort of the big, huge cases that are out there that are so consequential? Right. And you know, I don't have that answer as we speak. What I can say is that I have developed a growing interest in issues related to the healthcare industry. We've had litigation against hospitals that have not played by the rules and how they treat patients. And I have an interest in growing our resources to uh, look at that industry uh, in an even closer uh, fashion and make sure that rules are being followed yeah. and Washingtonians are being treated fairly uh, in that industry. So I think what you'll see from the office is continued growing work in areas like civil rights enforcement, consumer protection, environmental enforcement. I've grown those teams considerably and want to continue to grow them so we can take on powerful interests who don't play by the rules. And that's a big interest uh, for me and has been for the last seven years. Yeah, you definitely are a, uh, you are somebody who is not afraid to take on Goliath. And uh, I think, right, again, right. <laughs> I think the people of Washington yep. are, are very much in your debt for that. And I'll just say in closing that you strike me as an optimist. And, you know, you were talking about the uh, possibility of Trump uh, having another four years, which is just yeah. so daunting. But yeah. he's going to be in for at least another year and a half, which is mm-hmm. even even that is still daunting. And I think people could use a dose of hope. And you're pretty good at administering that. And so do you do you see any signs for hope in the next year and a half? Sure. I mean, I, I am a glass half full kind of guy. There's no doubt about that. And so as challenging as this time is with this president, and I think it's it's a dark chapter for the country. There's just no getting around it. But I, I guess what I feel is that it will come to an end. Um, I hope that it'll come to an end, obviously, next year. But my view is that you know our country is m- much more than any one individual, even a president, and that our systems, our checks and balances, our federal judiciary, for example, the free press, that I think Many Americans have seen how important um, and really how critical those checks and balances are. And from my standpoint, the judiciary, for the most part, has stepped up to that challenge, right? As AGs have filed lawsuits, we keep winning. And that has stopped many of the worst excesses of this administration. Um, That said, there's more work to be done, right? Um, And these elections will have massive consequences uh, for our country. But in general, I feel like uh, um, that the country is stronger than any one individual, 
And, uh, and I'm confident that the people will make the right choice in, in 2020. And in the meantime, we're going to focus on doing what we can in our office uh, to ensure that the administration follows the rule of law. And if they don't, they're going to see us in court. And we're going to trust that the people here in Washington do the right thing and elect you for a third term. Bob yeah, Frig- we'll, we'll see. We'll see what they decide. Yeah. <laughs> Bob Ferguson is the attorney general for the state of Washington. Uh, Bob Ferguson, it has been such a pleasure talking with you. Thank you for joining us. And especially thank you so much for all the work that you do. Hey, thanks so much. I really enjoyed it. Hope you all have a great day. And you can learn more about Bob Ferguson's re-election campaign. You can donate, you can volunteer, all that good stuff at electbobferguson.com. So before we go, just a couple of quick things. First, you may be aware that there is going to be a global climate strike on Friday, September 20th. This is the brainchild of the 16-year-old Swedish climate activist Greta Thunberg, which, you guys, by the way, how impressive is she? I mean, I don't want to think about what I was doing at 16. Anyway, she's amazing. So on Friday, people around the planet are going to be walking out of schools and workplaces to draw mass attention to the climate issue and to demand the end of fossil fuels. It is actually shaping up to be the largest climate mobilization in history. They are expecting millions of people to take part. If one of those people is going to be you and you are in or around Seattle, they have a day of activities planned. Phase one is going to kick off at 9 a.m. at Cal Anderson Park, and organizers are calling it an interactive festival learning environment with trainings, games, music, art, street theater demos, and teach-ins. That is going to be followed by a march at 1232 City Hall, where there will be a rally until 3 p.m. If you are downtown but cannot make it to Cal Anderson, a group called Amazon Employees for Climate Justice is inviting people to join them at the Spheres at Lenora and 7th at 1130 a.m., and they're going to be leading a separate march to City Hall. There are actually events all over the state, in Wenatchee, in Kirkland, North Bend, Tacoma, Port Angeles, Snohomish, elsewhere. You can learn more about all of this at WashingtonClimateWeek.org, and I will have that for you at IndivisiblePodcast.org. Something else that you can mark your calendar for is a panel on immigration put on by Lawyer Moms of America. This is going to be happening on Sunday, October 13th from noon to 2 p.m. at the King County Library Center in Issaquah. That is at 960 Newport Way Northwest. On the panel is going to be Hope Fry, who you will remember from last week's show. She's an immigration attorney, and she monitors conditions for children in detention. Also, Victoria Mena from the Washington Immigrant Solidarity Network, and Melissa Campos-Castaneda. She is a local asylum and removal defense attorney. I am actually going to be moderating the panel, and we're going to be discussing a host of issues, including the Trump administration's new regulations on the Flores settlement and how that may impact children and their families in detention, as well as the so-called third country rule and so much more. We are also going to be talking about ways that you can get involved and help. So again, that is Sunday, October 13th from noon to 2 p.m. in Issaquah. I will have complete information for you at indivisiblepodcast.org. 
And that's going to do it for this week's show. If you guys missed anything, if you would like to catch up on past shows, if you would like links to the things that we talked about here, you can always find that and more at indivisiblepodcast.org. And you can subscribe to the show there too. If you would like to get in touch, the email address for the show is indivisiblepodcast at gmail.com and the Twitter handle is at indivisiblepod. The Washington State Indivisible Podcast is a production of Get Creative Inc. and is part of the Demcast family of podcasts. Learn more about Demcast at DemcastUSA.com. Our associate producer is Charlotte Gittleman. Thank you again to my guest, Bob Ferguson. Special thanks to Lori Caldwell. And as always, my thanks to you guys for listening. We'll talk to you next time. Bye.